see all of you. We haven't met. My name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad you're here. And to all of you beautiful people joining us online, still the vast majority of us, I'm glad you've joined us. I hope this is as good an experience for you at home or wherever you're watching from as it is for us in this room. Hope to see you back here soon. So uh, I want to begin today by reminding us, well, let me pause. And before I begin by reminding us, I think it's important that I mention we're going to close our time today with communion. Everyone in the room will be directed around that. But to those of you watching online, if you've not gotten the communication about that, I encourage you to get yourself prepared for communion. Uh, uh, the elements are not that important. What's important is your faith in Jesus as you receive. So find bread or crackers or uh, uh, something that you think will be appropriate. Get some juice or some wine, and I hope that you'll be, be prepared to receive communion with us in just a few moments. So, um, as I was saying, I want to begin today by reminding us that we live our lives out of the stories that we know and believe and the stories we tell ourselves and others. As James Bryan Smith wrote, all behavior is based on a narrative. It's a profound and I think true statement. All behavior is based on a narrative. Some 400 years before Christ, the Athenian philosopher Plato cautioned that the stories children hear are foundational to how they will live their lives. In, in his Republic, Plato wrote, Shall we just carelessly allow children to hear any casual tales which may be devised by casual persons and to receive into their minds ideas for the most part the very opposite of those? which we should wish them to have when they are grown up. We cannot. The tales which the young first hear should be models of virtuous thought. As most of you know, and as you've heard Christian just explain, we organize our year around three trimester spiritual growth plans. And the plan for trimester one of this year is built around the theme, 2021, Live a Better Story. And over the next four months here at TLCC, we're going to focus on knowing better and believing more and telling ourselves and others the best and most important story ever told. This, of course, is the story of God. I love the closing line of the song that Haven just sang. Uh, the first time that I heard this song, I remember it distinctly. I was on an airplane. I had Bose sound things over my ears, and I'm just listening to music, and this song snuck up and surprised me. And I found myself teary-eyed on the plane listening to Brandy Carlisle sing this song. And I was moved by the words that really are the future. This much is true, she sang. I was made for you. And I knew when I heard that, that the ultimate application was to see my story in God's story. Because in the most real and important sense, He is the only one I can truly say those words to. This much is true. I was made for you. We must figure out 
how to live our story in line with God's bigger story. And so uh, this is good because God's story is a better story. Let me begin at the beginning. Uh, I'll take a few minutes here kind of uh, slowly working my way through some concepts. Uh, to, to then get to, to where I hope this will become very practical and meaningful for you today. But as is my want, I'm going to ask you to think with me a little bit, to focus, to work hard with me, to grab a really big concept. And then I want us to start figuring out how to apply it to our lives. So let me begin at the beginning. The creation narrative is the opening and perhaps most important chapter of God's better story. So the best scholarship indicates that Moses began writing Genesis in the 15th century BC during the exodus of the Jews from their 400 years in Egypt. While in Egypt, the Jews had most likely been exposed to a variety of mythologies about how the world came to be. These mythologies told stories of gods and goddesses and how they created the world and humanity. Many of these uh, uh, stories also told stories that are found in the primeval section of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, like about a flood that covered the earth. These stories were being told in Egypt predating the writing of Genesis. And so... Uh, for the purpose of this talk, the most important thing to know is that these mythologies presented a picture of a pantheon of gods and goddesses who were totally unlike the god that Moses now was going to describe in Genesis. These gods and goddesses warred against each other, were not constrained by any moral code. And to overgeneralize, they procreated and brought into being men and women to act like slaves and to do the menial work that the gods and goddesses didn't want to do. Moses, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote Genesis in part to tell a better story about a better God and his better plan for humanity. And his story was about one God in three persons living in perfect unity. His story was about a good God, unheard of until that time in human history, a good God who created human beings in his image and gave them dignity and stewardship over the planet. This story that Moses told was a story of love, a God who created out of love and who created people whom he could love and be loved by. The story that Moses told was a story about purpose, about there being a reason for humanity being here. And this story was about a beautiful relationship that God meant to happen between himself and the people he made. In fact, the first thing said in Genesis, the first thing said in all of Scripture, about God's interaction with the human beings that he had made are these simple words, God blessed them. Genesis 1.27. This had never been considered before, that one God created the world, put human beings in it, and loved the people he had made. Now it's important to note that Genesis 
is not supposed to be a science manual. You miss it when you try to look at Genesis that way. That was not its purpose. Genesis was, Genesis was written to tell the story of God and creation and the covenant that he wanted to make with human beings and so on. It was not written to tell us the how and where and when of creation. It was written to tell us the who and the why. God is the who and the why is that he wanted to create, again, a community of people with whom he could share his glory and be in relationship with and partner with to fulfill his purposes on this planet. Now, it's important to note, and I've already indicated this, but let me state it again. That though Genesis is the oldest part of our Bible, it is not the oldest literature from the ancient Near East. There already existed a body of literature that tried to explain how we got here and what it meant that we were here. The, the literature that existed before Genesis was, Genesis was written, though, told a bad story of gods and goddesses and their purposes for human beings. And God now calls Moses to set the record straight. God said through Moses, No, these stories you heard in Egypt are not true. Here's what really happened. Here's who I am. Here's why I made you. It begins a better story, and this is the theme that carries its way all the way through Scripture. It's about a God unlike any God that anyone has ever contemplated before. And God reveals himself to be the God that Genesis begins to tell the story of, the story of a good God who wants to be in relationship with people who believe in him and follow him. So, now let's fast forward to now. All through history now, different cultures have come up with their own stories in order to try to explain things. And our culture has a variety of stories that it tells itself about God or there not being a God, about how we got here, why we're here, what it means, etc. I want to just give you an example of, of what Joshua Chatrow calls three macro-narratives and three micro-narratives to give you a sense of what I mean when I talk about the stories that are being told in our culture. This is just a sampling. These are just six things I'm going to pull out of, many things that could be discussed about. But I say it just so you can track with me and understand what I mean when I'm talking about different stories. Okay? So, three macro narratives, and I'm borrowing heavily here from Joshua Chatrow. I'm grateful for his work. So here's a, here's a classic macro narrative, the pessimistic secular story. The universe came into existence through a big bang billions of years ago with no divine purpose or cause. On the planet we call Earth, life began to emerge from chemicals. After a long, key, unguided evolutionary history, Homo sapiens eventually and accidentally emerged. And on it goes. You know that story. A truly unflinching commitment to follow this story to its end leads the pessimistic secular person to conclude that human life has no ultimate significance. There is no cosmic order, no ethical order outside of our subjective preferences, no universal moral obligations, and even many would maintain no 
free will. Our actions are simply a product of our physical makeup and external stimuli. I mean, when taken to its logical conclusion, people who believe the pessimistic secular story will say that there's really not such a thing as love as we consider it. It's just a chemical response, a biological need to procreate, and so on. Uh, the, the pessimistic story ultimately says that eventually everything will run out of energy. No one will be alive to even remember human history. Ultimately, it will not matter that we ever existed. This is an example of the kind of story that our culture is telling itself. Here's another. The optimistic secular story. The optimistic secular story tells the same story in terms of origins, how we got here. But unlike its secular counterpart, the pessimistic story, which sees a godless world as a cold reality, this, the optimistic secular story, is an exhilarating story of liberation. I think this is the story, by the way, most prevalent in our culture today. As rational beings set free from our cultural captivity to religion, we can now rise above the evolutionary forces of individual and tribal survival for the purpose of human flourishing. Yes, we will all one day die and cease to exist, but we, we now find ourselves in the present time not only as actors in the story, but as authors with the freedom to write the story for ourselves and to pursue meaning and happiness on our own terms. So the optimistic secular story says, yes, we got here accidentally. No, there's no divine uh, purpose for our existence, nothing outside of ourselves. Yes, we will all die and cease to exist, and it will not have mattered that we were here. But let's do the most we can while we're here. Let's make up our own way and try to find what it means to flourish as human beings. Here's a third uh, macro narrative, the story of pluralistic the story of pluralistic and moral therapeutic spirituality. Now, sometimes you hear some, frankly, Christians talk about Christianity misguidedly in a way that sounds like this is the story they're telling. But hear, hear what this story is about. While not necessarily discounting the current secular models for the emergence of life, God, or at least some kind of divine force, is still seen as essential. God gives life meaning, morality, and significance. However, neither God, morality, nor our purpose is found by looking outside of ourselves. You may say, understandably, why is that important? Well, if all you have is the divine spark in yourself, frankly, you don't have all that much. See, that's, how is that different than the Christian story? The difference in the Christian story is to say that God is transcendent. He is above and beyond everything that he created and that we not only have God to help us live our best life, but that we exist because God had a purpose for us. He had a story he wanted to tell and wanted us to live in. And part of this includes that we worship him, that we obey him, that we serve him. See, it's a different story than the daily television talk host that's about spirituality. But when it's all said and done, it's about looking inside of ourselves to listen to the unique or divine spark within us and live authentic lives. 
This story says essentially that God exists to help us find our true potential, feel better about ourselves, and guide us to treat others with dignity and respect. There's some attractiveness to that story. It just ultimately is not God's story. Here are three micro-narratives. These, I'll treat these differently. Again, there are so many of us. What are the stories that our culture is telling itself? One micro-story would be the story of consumerism. The story of consumerism says that the good life comes with a price tag. The story of consumerism says the person with the most stuff wins. Now, if we're honest, and this is part of the challenge I'll offer to all of us, we have to realize that our behavior is, many of us, is influenced by this narrative. As if the most important thing in life is how much we make, how much we accumulate, And if we're not careful, our behavior is living out of a narrative that ultimately is not the real story. A second uh, micro-narrative would be the story of achievement, which says you are what you accomplish. A third very popular story is the story of romance. The story of romance says that our loneliness, our insatiable desire to love and be loved can be satisfied if we just find our soulmate. If we can just find that right person. That's the story that Hollywood tells us over and over and over. God forbid chick flicks tell us that story over and over and over. If you just find the right person. You're going to find what you need, and of course, that ends up being an untrue story, a less than true story. It's a good story. It's a part of the story. So, my wife of 30, holy moly, of many, many years, 36, I believe, right? My wife of 30-some years not responding to me at this moment, I think 36 years. I can look at my wife, and I do look at my wife, and it's true for me to say the words of the song we just heard. This much is true. I was made for you. That's the romantic story, and it's a good story. It's an important story. However, it's not the ultimate story. The reason that I say that ultimately I can only say those words to God is because when you understand God's story, you understand that we were made by Him, we were made for Him, that He has purposes for our lives, and I was made for my wife in a sense, but ultimately if our romance, if our romantic story is not lived in the context of that bigger story, if our covenant before God ultimately isn't used to serve God's greatest purposes, then I have tried to find meaning in an important story, but a lesser story. Do you understand? This much is true. I was made for you. See, and if we're not careful, folks, we find ourselves telling the stories that our culture is trying to tell us, and powerfully so through mediums like movies and so on and so forth, and we're telling ourselves wrong stories or lesser stories or good stories that's not the best story. See, the fact is that God wants to tell us a better story. 
See, we have a better story and we have a true story. The Christian story is centered around a good God who created the universe and people out of his love. A God who gave people dignity and purpose and free will. And who, when people decided to reject his good plan for them, enacted a self-sacrificial plan to show up on this planet to bring people back to himself and his purposes. The Christian story, again, then centers on God who became a person named Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection and exaltation offers us the possibility of redemption and restoration to what God wanted for us in the beginning. And this story goes on forever. Now, I don't have time today to talk about the wealth of evidence that this story is true, though all the evidence tells us it is. And we talk a lot about that here. Rather, I want to focus on the fact that it's a better story. It's a better story than was told by the pagans many, many, many thousands of years ago. And it's a better story that's told by the secularist now. And what we believe about God and His story impacts every area of our lives. Knowing and believing this story and living our lives in response to this story is fundamental to our individual and communal stories being all that they were meant to be. But to get God's story right, we must begin and end with God. To get this story right, we must begin and end with God. It's a beautiful writing from the first century called uh, Advice to a Son by someone named Paternus. What he wrote is beautiful. He said, first of all, my child, think magnificently of God. Magnify His providence. Adore His power. Pray to Him frequently and incessantly. Bear Him always in your mind. Teach your thoughts to reverence Him in every place, for there is no place where He is not. Therefore, my child, fear and worship and love God first and last. Think magnificently of Him. This is where our story starts. It starts in having a proper understanding as much as we can of who God is. Our recommended reading for this trimester is Dallas Willard's Life Without Lack. And in part of the book, he spends time describing who God is so that we can understand that when we, when, we, when, we, when we have God or God has us, we have everything we need for life. And he writes in his book, I am pleading with you here to take upon yourself the task of making these realities about God a part of your mind. To understand that God is a certain kind of being, that He existed before the creation of the earth in all His plenitude. God, Willard says, is not something to be toyed around with. He will not fit into our plans, but we can fit into His. And they are glorious plans indeed. Now with all this in mind, that was called the introduction. Now let me move into what I want to talk about the rest of today and next week. I want to try to do something that can't be done. I want to try to define God. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I'll I'll not be able to do it, but I'm going to 
try best as I can to define God, understanding that our better story about our lives and the better story about life itself begins in God. On one hand, God is unknowable. We are not able to fully understand Him. Yet on the other hand, He has made Himself known to us so He can truly be known by us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And so He's he's tried, if you please, if, if that's the right way to talk about God, to make Himself known. Now, I must confess that sometimes... When I consider God, I would get what I call a concept vertigo. As if in trying to comprehend God, He who has no beginning and end, the be-all and end-all of existence, I get an intellectual sensation of extreme dizziness. It's as if I'm standing on the roof of the Empire State Building, just on the edge, looking down. And uh, I, I get a concept vertigo, if you please, a discombobulation of the soul. I want to sit down and scoot back and try to think about something else, like whether the Yankees are going to re-sign D.J. LeMahieu or not. And I do think a lot about that, actually. And it's easier to think about that than to contemplate God. Now, the English language has a wealth of words available to at least convey how mysterious the God mystery is. It is a baffling, enigmatical, incomprehensible, and abstruse conundrum. I've worked hard on all of this language. It is impenetrable, inconceivable, inexplicable, and mystically mystifying. It's safe to say that God seems utterly unfathomable. The contemplation of God can cause an agoraphobia of the mind, an almost pathological fear of the height and depth and width and breadth of the mystery of God. There's this great picture in the Revelation of John following an angel around as the angel measures heaven. We're told that the angel tries, that the angel measures heaven with a human measurement. The angel's walking around heaven. John's following around and the angel's trying to measure heaven with like a yardstick or a tape measure or something. Here's what the text says, Revelation 21. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod. He measured its wall by human measurement, which the angel was using. I just find it fascinating that God is trying to communicate through John what heaven is, and he's trying to communicate something that none of us can fully grasp, but nonetheless, he's got an angel walking up there with a yardstick so we can at least get some kind of comprehension. But how do you measure with human measurement a city 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high? How does one comprehend walls of jasper that are 216 feet thick, or streets of transparent gold, or 12 gates each made from a single pearl? Do you get that? Do you see that now in your mind? No, you can't. But nonetheless, this angel's going around on his hands and feet saying, three feet, three feet, three feet, three feet. Why? Because God, who cannot be understood, is always trying to help human beings get it somehow. John Calvin called it accommodation. 
He said God tried to accommodate human beings by, by causing us to see Himself. And obviously the ultimate fulfillment of that is that God tries to teach us about Himself through His Word and through the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus shows up on the planet and says, Ta-da! This is what God is like. Because God, who cannot be comprehended, somehow desperately wants you to know Him. Here are a couple of attempts to, if you please, measure God. Here's a beautiful description of God written by a theologian named Adam Clark a long, long time ago. I'll read this without comment because it's so beautiful in and of itself. It, the, who, who is God? Adam Clark wrote, The eternal, independent, and self-existent being the being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely benevolent, beneficent, true, and holy, the cause of all being, the upholder of all things, infinitely happy because infinitely perfect, and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that He has made, illimitable in His immensity, inconceivable in His mode of existence, and indescribable in His essence, known fully only by Himself, because an infinite mind can only be comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who, from His infinite wisdom, cannot err or be deceived, and from His infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just right, and kind. As I read that, I want to break out into a song of worship. And I ask you a question. Would you rather find the divine spark within yourself or have a relationship with a God like that? I want to talk to you about a better story than the stories you're being told in our culture. Now let's dig in now to a much simpler attempt to describe God. It's a classic definition. This one is from James Sire. By the way, I'll ask the question that uh, I ask every once in a while. Is everybody doing okay? You doing all right? You didn't have to clap, but thanks. Okay. Glad you're okay. And just sometimes, sometimes I'm just happy people are awake. It's like, wow, this is great. Wake up your spouse on the couch right now. Here's, here's what I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about, and I'll focus on next week as well, Lord willing. God is infinite and personal, triune, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. God is infinite and personal, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. So we'll talk about this for the rest of our time today, and then next week we'll pick it up. So let's talk about how that God is infinite and personal. The God described in the Bible is infinite. Though He wants to make Himself known to us, the reality is that He is beyond scope and beyond measure. He is 
not subject to human understanding or human limitations. He is far greater than the world he has made. He is not contained by time. He is the singular source of all other reality. He is the only self-existent being. Someone, of course, understandably, we ask the question, where did God come from? And God's answer is this. I am the I am. I just am. When we contemplate this, we can feel as lost in the infinity of God as a little rowboat in the middle of a roiling ocean. Larry Libby wrote, You look ahead as far as you can see, start staring at the featureless horizon until your eyes water. You look behind you and to either side of you, and it is the same. Empty sky meeting endless water, endless fathoms of ocean below, and infinite fathoms of sky above, trying to contemplate the infinity infinite God. And who are you? Ha! You are so near to being nothing that you hardly register on the scale. You are a transient, infinitesimal speck of organic lint in a frail, oarless boat riding the dark mountain swells of mystery. There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, look, here's what the prophet Isaiah said. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Larry Libby again, what does a speck of a person on a speck of a planet in the swirling arm of a galaxy among numberless universes in the limitless light years of space know about the one who spoke it all into being with a word? The answer according to scripture is not much. Job had an argument with God, if you'll remember, and God finally had had enough and, and God says to Job, he says, Job, you, you think you know so much, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. You're asking me questions, God says, let me ask you some. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? Can you direct the movement of the stars? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? To which Job responded, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand, which is the best thing Job ever said. I give God. I get it. Before you, I am nothing. You're out there. And I'm down here. But see, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because God is not just infinite. God is also personal. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology writes, in the teaching of the Bible, God is both infinite and personal. He is infinite in that he is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. But he is also personal. He interacts with us as a person, and we can relate to him as persons. 
We can pray to Him, worship Him, obey Him, and love Him so He can speak to us, rejoice in us, and love us. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, Grudem writes, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal. See, God stands at the beginning of Genesis and says, I want to tell you a better story than the stories that you've heard. John captures all of this beautifully in his gospel. One of the things we're going to focus on during this trimester is the gospel of John, particularly in the next series, our Lenten series here, where we're going to talk about how that God tells us what he's like through Jesus. But John, you know, in words that most of you would be familiar with, introduces God to us, Jesus to us, with these these great uh, inspired words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He begins his gospel by describing infinite God. The God who in the beginning spoke and out of him came life. Infinite God. But then of course John then introduces us to Jesus. Personal God. And he says the word, infinite God, became flesh, personal God, and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth no one has ever seen god but the one and only son who is himself god and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known jesus is the human measurement where infinite god tries to say this is what i'm like and when you read John's gospel, you have to hear John as the, as the, as the teenager he probably was when he, he was called to be a disciple of Jesus. An excited young man who, who came to the understanding that God, the God of the universe, was dwelling as full God in a person who was fully a man named Jesus Christ. And when you read the Gospel of John, you have to hear John like a little, like a, like a, like a 17 year old boy, if you please, jumping around saying, God showed up on the planet and I got to see him. And here's what happened. You have to hear him say, I saw God turn water into wine. When you go through the Gospel of John and hear the stories he told. I saw God eat dinner and hang out with friends. I saw God cry. I saw God get angry. I saw God create food and feed more than 5,000 people. I saw God raised from the dead. I saw God when he hung on the cross before he was raised from the dead. I stood there. I looked at him. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you read through the Gospel of John with that perspective, John saying, Look, 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 look. The Word that existed before the universe began and who caused it. He 
spit on mud and he rubbed it in the eyes of a blind man and the blind man could see and you just have to hear John saying and he tries to finish writing the gospel and the last verse shows that he's given up the attempt to try to measure God with a human measurement when he says Jesus did many other things as well if every one of them were written down I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written John says, I've tried to tell you what God was like, but now that Jesus sits exalted at the right hand of God, I give up because I could just keep writing about all the things that I saw, and the universe could not contain the things that could be said about the infinite God who showed up on this planet in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John didn't really say it that long, but that's kind of what he's saying. But... As fascinating as it is to read how John tells the story of the infinite God and the person of Jesus Christ is how John describes himself in the context of that story. See, that's when this whole thing matters. It's how do we tell our story in light of his story? How do we see ourselves in light of who he is? There were times in the Gospel of John when John had to describe himself in the story. You know, John's called John the Beloved. Now, spoiler alert, some of you have heard me teach this part before, but I can't keep away from it today because it's so revealing. John's called John the Beloved. Everybody know who, who named John John the Beloved? John. Because when John tried to put himself in the story of Jesus, he described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, tell me your story. I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. Was he the only one? Of course not. But in John's mind, the infinite God had become so personal that it was if John was the only person in the world, even though he knew he wasn't, but it was as if John was the only person in the world who had fully experienced the love of God shown up on this planet. So John says, at the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting there, and, 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 and one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And John tells the story of standing at the cross with Mary. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. And John said, Jesus looked down and he said to the disciple who Jesus loved, he said, please take care of my mother. And John said, Mary Magdalene, she came running from an empty tomb. And Simon Peter and I were there. And he said, she told us the tomb is empty. And then Simon Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved had a foot race to the tomb. And John was a human being. He had a little ego. He also said, I got there first. And then he says, after the resurrection, we're on a boat, and I look on the seashore, and, 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 and I see someone. And, and John writes, the disciple who Jesus loved said, look, there's the Lord. And then he said, Simon Peter and the disciples had breakfast with Jesus. Jesus cooked breakfast over a charcoal fire. And then Simon Peter went walking on the beach with Jesus, and they reconciled. And walking along behind is the person recording the story. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Hey, John, tell us your story. I am the disciple who Jesus loved. And see the beautiful thing, my friends, is when you get a big picture of a big God who's so much bigger than the stories you're being told that try to limit him to some human way, 
you get a big picture of a God who's transcendent, who's beyond, above, and the causer of everything. And then you get this idea that that God wants to be in relationship with you. That changes everything. And what we're going to try to do over the next four months is to help us to get this. So that when it's all said and done, all of us understand what it means that our story is lived in the context of his and we ultimately say this much is true I was made for you so 